Beautiful, thank you. Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambutasa Namoetasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambutasa Namoetasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambutasa Putang Tamang Sankang Namasami So I must say, um, with the teachings and the interviews and so on, uh, there's been a lot said, and uh, I, I find myself I was sitting in the meditation because we have this practice of, of speaking, you know, from without notes and so on, and, and uh, I was sitting in the meditation with a rather an empty mind, so. <laughs> So this will be a little act of faith now. That something will come out. <laughs> and reflecting on on wisdom and compassion. You know, wisdom and compassion as as the gifts or fruits of mindfulness. You know, it's it's pointing to the two different aspects or two different ways of looking at um, you could say let's let's just home it down to a human being or a, or a, or a person let's home it down to that it goes much broader than that but you know and the the great compassion of the buddha was to give the liberating teaching teaching which liberates us from this realm of samsara, this this constant movement towards pleasure, movement away from pain, trying to find satisfaction in what is changing, trying to um, you know not wanting what we have, wanting what we don't have, all of that that we get stuck in again and again that we we motivate our lives around. So the, the Buddha's great compassion is trying to help us to see more clearly, to see the mistakes that we're making in seeing what is changing as, as what is permanent or, or self, and seeing what is what inherent what what can't it inherently cannot give us lasting satisfaction as being something which from which we can get satisfaction so he's trying to to point out the truth of the way things are so that we can be free of this compulsion of always moving away from the present into some idea of of the future into some idea of of a happiness greater than we can experience here and now so he's pointing us back, really, to this. You know, the, the qualities of the Dharma, 
being apparent here and now. This is one of the attributes of the Dharma. It's, it's apparent here and now. So there are the, the books, and we have now all these wonderful translations of, of the suttas and, and commentaries, and then people's teachers, writings. There's an incredible you know, range of, of Dhamma teachings available. And there is the Dhamma, which is always available right here, whether you've got a book or not, whether you've got a, an iPad or not. It's right here apparent here and now and that is the you know the the constant changing nature of things and when we when we look carefully we see it and when we don't look carefully it's like it's a bit like a film it's like the old kind of films you know where we, if we if you're running the film you're watching the movie and you get really you get really into it and you get into the characters and, and all of the, you know, your, get, your emotions get swayed by the love story and the tragedy and all of that that goes on in the film. But if you stop the film and you just look at one frame, it's just that. And you see, oh, it's, it's just made up of lots of little frames running together. There's no, no substance to it, really. It's a, it's a projection, literally a projection. So, you know, our, our, our lives are, are like that. Our, what, we, what we take to be me and mine, me, is, is like that. It's, it's these elements, these ever-changing elements. And uh, one way of looking is to see it like a river, the sense of, of being me. Is like a river. So we name rivers, you know, we say this is the, the Hudson River and then we know what it is, okay, and then we're, we're driving along the side of the Hudson River and we know it's the Hudson. But what is the Hudson River? Yeah. Can you pin it down, actually? And the, if, you, if you see it one week and then you go back a week later, is it the same river or not? because that water is constantly flowing. And then where does the, r- the river begin and end? Does it, it, is it the banks of the river? Is, that the, where, is it just the water? Is that the river? Or is it the, does it include the river bed and the banks of the river? Where does it begin and end? Is, you, can't really, you can't really make a point where it, it starts and stops. And then as it flows down into the ocean... You know, there's a little while where it's still fresh water and then it's brackish water and then it just becomes part of the ocean. There's no point you can really, where you can really pin down where it stops being the Hudson River and becomes the ocean. It's, it's a process. So our lives are like this too. There's a process of body, changing body, as I was saying before, a little, you know, there's a, there's a, in the very beginning there's a, an egg, and then there's a sperm, and then there's the, the um, fertilization of the egg, and then dividing of cells and, and growing into a fetus in the, in the mother's womb, in our mother's womb. 
and then being born and then uh, you know going through the the process of of growth if the conditions are right growing and changing and and that really never stops actually we we don't you know the growing taller stops the growing wider sometimes doesn't always stop <laughs> But you know, on on it goes this this ever changing process. And then at some point, well, and also the breath. You know, the breath is part of that. Is is that's also is constantly changing. And the food that we put in is is different every day. You know, we we put food in. Part of it becomes what we call me. And then part of it we don't want to think about. <laughs> And that part was me just a little while ago, you know. So, this is going on all the time, constantly. And then at some point, the, the last breath will, there'll be the last exhalation for this lifetime. And then we call that dying. But actually the process goes on. So, if we let it, I mean, in, in, in a natural state, we, the body would, let's say, be in the, on the earth or maybe in water, and it would start to break down and creatures would start to move in and help with the breaking down process. So in a sense, it hasn't, you know, it, the life hasn't ended, but it's changed. <laughs> That life process is continuing, but it's not continuing in a way that we would think of as me. But it's still going on, and then it, the body breaks down, it becomes part of the earth again. And it's, it becomes the nourishment for trees and flowers, grass. And on it goes, it's a, it's a process. So this is what we call me and mine. It's funny, isn't it, that we do that? And in, in, in grasping this process as me and mine, we, we make problems for ourselves, basically. We make life so much more difficult than it needs to be. So, <clears throat> you know, we, that's on, on an ultimate level, there is just a process going on here. There's just a process of feelings, thoughts, perceptions, sensory experiences through the six sense doors, and body. That, that's, all, that's, that's all there is, body as a, as a process. That's kind of what's going on. And then there's the, the attachment to that as me and mine. Or maybe also the attachment to another as me and mine, or not me, but mine. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's learning to find the, the right relationship to this process. So if we just go to the ultimate level, and then we say, there's no self, everything's impermanent, and we attach to those ideas, then we can become very aloof and... Uh, disconnected really and uh, you see this in monasteries it's, it's, it's kind of a, a phase that people often go through you know. 
no self. <laughs> Everything's impermanent, nothing matters, you know. <laughs> Until something happens and <laughs> kind of brings you back down to earth again and you kind of, oh. You realize there's a few more layers to work through before you actually realize that fully. But, um, <laughs> you know, the, the understanding of impermanence, it's not something to, it, it's not meant to lead to a sense of indifference. It's not meant to lead to um, an aloofness in, in, a, in that way, but to really understanding the way things are. And you know, when I tune into that, if I know that that if I really, which isn't very often, I have to admit, but if I really tune into this moment and I feel like, gosh, there, this, there's never going to be another moment like this, then it's the most it's the most precious moment, and the mind is really sharp and bright and alert, because you know this is it, this is it, this is life now. Wow. So it's not a it's not a kind of a, a concept that you stick on top of experience, but it's about it's about tuning in, sharpening the attention and really seeing this changing nature of things. And I don't know about you, but for myself, you know, if I'm I was thinking think about when I was taking care of my grandmother when she was very old. And you know the this, the uh, sign of impermanence is very strong. It's a woman, ninety-year-old woman, who'd you know raised four children, had I forget how many grandchildren, quite a lot, and um, you know was at the end of her life. And that preciousness of being with somebody who you know, you know this could be their last day. This could be, even be their last breath. You know becomes very precious, the time with that person. Because you, you're aware, so clearly aware of the impermanence. So impermanence, you know, the contemplation of impermanence is to bring us into clear alignment with, with this, with things as they are. It's not to you know, move us away from this. And also when we see, more deeply we understand the impermanent nature of all things and we see our own clinging and our own craving, we can't help but feel compassionate. It's like you know, on one hand the intellect, you know everything's impermanent. If you attach, it leads to suffering. So let go of attachment, you've got it all up there, it's it's kind of quite easy actually. And then then there's life. (laughs) <laughs> which is kind of messy and, and complicated and, and there's karma arising you know you, you think you know where you're going what you're going to do and then suddenly you lose your job or you, or you fall in love or there's an earthquake if you're living in California you know so suddenly everything changes and you, and you, you just you know that, that nice little neat trajectory that you're on isn't going to work anymore. So, so in the practice, we're developing this capacity to be with things as they are, and sometimes that means being f- firmly attached, and we can't let go. 
And just to know that, okay, I'm, I'm totally attached to this person or to this idea or to this, this um, outcome even. I'm completely attached to this and I can't let it go. And just to know that, just know that if that's how it is. Because the, when we read the books, it all looks very clear. It's a nice clear map, of, you know, stages of insight and all that. And, and yet life, uh, in my experience, isn't, even as a nun, it is not like that. You know, the challenges come from all sides. And you know, we have to learn to listen to our own wisdom, intuition, and follow that. You know. So we, we all like to have, there's a, there's a, at least for some time, we all like to have some big teacher who's going to tell us how to do it. Show me how to get enlightened. Tell me what to do when things are difficult. You know. Show me the way. We all we all want that. And in a sense the Buddha is that. He's he's showing the way, but he's saying, This is the way and and you've got to get on with it. (laughs) Nobody's gonna do it for you. Even if they wanted to, they, they can't. So So we have to really apply wisdom and compassion to our practice. You know, not, not to get stuck in a concept of the Dhamma. And also not to get stuck in the, the sense of, of self. So that will arise again and again, and we'll get caught again and again. And just to, just to keep on bringing up that reminder, you know, this is a process. You can name yourself. This, I, I do it. This Ananda Bodhi is a process. This is Ananda Bodhiing. You know, this is what's going on. And you know, if I have an idea of myself as a thing, as a somebody, then I've got an idea of what, what I should be, how I should, you know, manifest in the world, how I should come over, the things that aren't good enough, the things that are, are great. You know, all of that stuff. And it's, it's kind of a, a stuck position. But if I can let this be a process, and I'm not, um, you know, I'm not trying to be some, somebody Well, that really not trying to be somebody with a, you know with a, with a particular outcome or you know, then I can just let this be what it is, and there are times when it will be really great, inspiring, fun, wonderful, insightful process, and there are times when it will be contracted, confused, maybe depressed, you know, whatever. There's times when it will when the Ananda Bodhi process will be, be those things, and that's all part of it. It's just knowing, knowing the process, allowing it to go through its, its natural unfolding and to bring attention and awareness to that process. So if we just do it blindly, then we're just kind of repeating the same old things again and again. But if we bring attention to what's going on, then we start to understand a bit more clearly, ah, 
you know, you get those insights of like, ah, oh, you know, this is this is arising because of that. This is caused by that. And in in that way, we can start to unravel this this uh, kind of conglomerate of self. So one of the very important things to look at is the is what we call identity view. You know, the way we identify with this river. You know, where the the Buddha speaks about the the different stages of insight. So the four stages of enlightenment or leading to enlightenment, and stream enterer, once returner, non-returner, and fully enlightened being, arahant. And the, you know, the, and then there's the the ordinary folks, the, those who have not yet had any of those insights. And then there's a there's a kind of a bridge. Also, there's the the faith followers and the dhamma followers, who are those who are kind of leading towards that. They're on the way towards that first stage of insight of, of stream entry. And uh, so this is the these are the kind of minds that approach the the Dharma through faith, you know, having faith that the Buddha knows the, the way out of suffering, and maybe you know, devotion and a sense of giving of oneself. And there are those who really scrutinize the teachings, they need to really understand every detail of the teaching. And that leads to insight, which leads to confidence, which opens the way to liberation. So both of these are valid paths, and different minds have different leanings. And they're, they're equally uh, valid and they, they, they lead to the same result eventually. And uh, you know, the, one of the first three fetters, or the, the first three fetters to stream entry are identity belief and um, belief that rites and rituals will liberate us and doubt in the triple gem, so doubt in the the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. Those are the first three fetters. And if those are broken, if we, can, if we can break through those, then we break through into a, a clear insight into emptiness or a, a clear experience, just a very brief experience, but a very clear experience of the enlightened mind. And that is enough, you know, that, that, is, that gives a, a deep confidence. And once one, one experiences that, there's no more doubt it's, you know, even though there might be still a lot of work to do, it's not that one would be free of greed, hatred, and delusion, but it's one seen through the illusory nature of this conditioned realm. And one of the really big kind of sticking points in, in of these three fetters is the belief that you know this this body is who and what I am. These feelings are who and what I am. These thoughts are who and what I am. These perceptions, perceptions very tricky. These perceptions are who and what I am, and these, you know, these sense experience. You know, the I, I am. I must be here because I'm seeing. You know, I'm looking out and I'm seeing you. I can hear my voice. I can feel my body, and so on. So, it's the it's the attachment and identification with this, with these processes which is uh, one of the first fetters to enlightenment. So it's very important to, to take a good look at these processes. 
And uh, you know, people often say, well, "Well, if I'm not, you know, if I'm not the body, and I'm not feeling, and I'm not thought, and I'm not perception, and I'm not sense consciousness, then who am I? Where am I? You know, I've got to be one of those things." And th- and that's a very good question. <laughs> yes, it's a good question to ask. It gets a bit scary, and I get a little bit hot around the collar because uh, we feel like we we must be somebody. We've got to be somebody, because if we're not anyone, if we can't believe in any of those things, then then it's really scary. Then we're, when, then we're just kind of lost in space. That's, that's how it appears. Because we only know how to, how to attach. We only know how to be somebody. And what the Buddha is encouraging us is to, is to be the process. To let the process unfold. And it's not that uh, if, when we are that process, we no longer have a character, or we lose our sense of humour, or you know, we become a, a zombie or anything like that. <laughs> In fact, uh, some of the the more you know, the more enlightened beings you might meet have great character. I mean, the Dalai Lama, for example, has a very warm and wonderful character. I've been lucky enough to meet a few. Other you know, people who've had who have quite high levels of realization, and they they all have very strong character. And if you look in the in the suttas, they describe the the different arahants, incredibly different characters, very different characters. So it's not like we we uh, we become bland or something, but we're allowing this process, this karmic process, to go on without adding to it, without attaching. And, if, and, and also when we can't do that, that we know that that's what's going on. When we can't let go, we know, just can't do it, you know, trying to, trying to, can't do it. You know, because the, the reality doesn't always meet the ideal, often doesn't meet the ideal. So it's learning how to, to you know, there's the, there's the intellectual understanding of the teaching, there's the ideal of how we would like to be, and then there's the, the humble reality of where we are, how things are. And being able to come back to this often quite humbling reality and allow that to be fully present. Let it, let it be just like this. And it's unfolding. And it doesn't mean that we can't cultivate what's good. We can cultivate generosity. We can cultivate loving kindness, very, very important. And compassion, you know, I feel like compassion can hold the whole process. So we can cultivate wholesome qualities, but we're not doing it to try and become a perfect person. We're doing it as a support and as, and as a gift to ourselves and others. So, yeah, this is, I want to emphasize this way of investigation because it is if we if we really start if we really understand and can see this process of of selfing that happens and learn to let it let go and just you know let it be like an instrument as I like to think of us as you know people are like instruments you know we we're, we're all different there are drums there are lutes there are flutes there are guitars there are pianos, and there are all these different kinds of instruments, and 
and each one makes a different sound, you know. We, we all have our different ways of, of, of being. And that's how it's meant to be. We're not meant to be all the same. But we, we don't take a piano and try and make it into a flute, you know. We don't take a drum and, you know, want it to sound like a violin. We, we, we use what we've got. We, get, we make friends with what's here. And we use this in, a, in as skillful way as we can in the world. And a, an important part of this process is learning to be with feeling. You know, I, Santa Chita was speaking very clearly about feeling and you know, learning to be with feeling because much of what we do is, is try to move away from unpleasant feeling. It's, it's quite amazing the, the extent to which we do it and, and the subtleties of, of avoidance. You know, having been, having been now 20 years in, in monastic life, you find like, just, in fact, just this last winter retreat, just gone a few months back, started to meet a certain, certain feeling that I hadn't actually met before in all these years. It's like, gosh, I hadn't actually allowed myself to be fully present with this feeling in all this time. And, and, and coming into alignment with it and fully allowing it to be there and to be felt. And you know, that then gives, that informs me. And I, then I understand, you know, this is the, this is the conditioning which, which manifests in this way. Then I kind of understand what's going on. I don't have to avoid it or pretend it isn't there or try to push it away. It's like, ah, oh, okay, there's that conditioning. And that's, that has this way of manifesting in the world. And, it's, and it may change in this lifetime. It may not. It may, may be there f- until I die. And it's a fine. <laughs> Because it's part of what it's part of what's here. It belongs. So it can be very a very subtle process. You know, at first we're working with quite gross things, and then gradually just get more and more. Go, we work through more and more layers of of um, conditioning, really. So you know. To, I just would like to really encourage everyone to turn towards this process and really become intimate with it, get to know it, your process of being somebody, whoever you are. Get to know it really intimately, not, not, in, a, not in an attached way, but in a way of just like really, really interested and again, not self-absorbed. So you, every time you see somebody, you tell them about your past traumas or your latest insight or whatever. It's not a, not a self-absorbed thing. But it's just about really, really knowing what's going on. And you know, not, not fighting with it. So this is a practice which leads to liberation, leads to freedom. It might not feel like it while you're in the process. (laughs) 
it can feel quite humbling, you know. But it, it leads to greater freedom. And in that process also, I, I touched on it before, but you know, past conditioning. So I was speaking about depression the other day. And um, you know, depression, we're, we're not born depressed. A baby doesn't tend to get depressed. But you know, through conditions in life, we start to, you know, through, through shutting down or through, you know, maybe even actually being born at this, in this time it can be a cause for depression. If you really look at what's going on, it is, it is quite worrying, you know. But, you know, th- this, is, this is conditioned. And because it's conditioned, then we can get to know it. And through being present with it, it can start to, sh- start to change. Gradually, gradually can shift. So even things that we feel are deeply part of who and who we are can can be transformed through our presence and compassion, kindness, patience. And this is work that you know any of us can do. It's not you don't have to be a great master. You don't have to have a PhD in Buddhist studies. You know, you just have to be able to turn back here and have a look, honestly, what's going on, and be willing to be with the process and learn from the process. And uh, you know, it can it can lead to to great freedom great joy, or even little freedom and little joys. So I'd like to offer that for you this evening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.